Hello, fellow griever. You have found The Leftover Pieces, Suicide Lost Conversations, and I am Melissa, your podcast host. I am with you on this journey because my 21-year-old son, Alex, died by suicide on August 7th of 2016. And since starting this podcast in 2020, in 2021, I felt a nudge to take the leftover pieces further and have now opened an online support community as well. There, I lead parents who have lost a child by suicide from survival toward hope and into healing. The website is also a resource hub, a connecting point, if you will, for all survivors of suicide loss. You can find me there on theleftoverpieces.com. I am always open to suggestions for episode topics and welcome referrals if you know someone I should have a conversation with here on the podcast. So now I invite you to join me for real conversations, candid talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of loved ones by suicide. I talk to other loss survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and on alternate weeks, I offer my own thoughts. Here, every week, we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true that our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me, and together, let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Hello, fellow griever. Today, you've reached Season 3, Episode 12 of the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations podcast. And as always, I'm Melissa, your host. Today, I'm going to share with you a conversation I had not too long ago with a lovely woman who goes by JJ. Her name is Janice Joyner, and she is just absolutely a joy to speak with. Janice was born in Charleston, West Virginia, and claims that she still loves the mountains to this day. But she didn't always live in the United States. JJ grew up living in Oslo, Norway with her parents, and her dad's job had them traveling throughout Europe in her younger years. And she actually credits that to still loving to travel today. When Janice was only 11 years old, she read the book, Cherry Ames, Student Nurse. It sparked a love for nursing in her that never left. And she went on to go to nursing school and eventually master in nursing and midwifery. She spent her working career in the OBGYN field and midwife field, delivering babies, caring for babies, and caring for the mothers at the same time. And somewhere along the line, in those early days after nursing school, Janice married her college sweetheart. And so not only did JJ get her dream job, but she also felt like together her and her husband built their dream family. Their family consisted of three beautiful children. Katie was the oldest, then came Eric, and then finally Janie Grace. JJ tells me 
in a very fun-loving way that many people have doubted her over the years, but that all of her children were just easygoing and a joy to raise. They all went to college and then adventured from there into their own life and their own dreams to build their own lives. Somewhere along the way, her middle child, Eric, did start to struggle. He battled alcoholism and depression, as well as anxiety and possibly some OCD. And despite trying to get help and often feeling like it fell short, Eric did seem to be on an upswing when he decided to come home and get things in order. However, one night, that all changed when Eric made a decision that to JJ felt like a flip of a switch. In that one quick moment, Eric died by suicide. In the almost year that's passed since Eric's death, JJ has had to come to terms with the fact that despite all of her years of daily prayers for her children's happiness and safety, and all of the things that she had done to serve people in her world, and all of the luck that she honestly felt like she had had in her life, despite all of it, she had to realize that suicide really can touch any family. And it had indeed touched hers. I found JJ to be brave, but I also found her to be warm and inviting and friendly. And I hope you'll stay clear to the end when she shares an almost eerie dream that she had that carries one of those synchronicities that I've talked about. It will leave you kind of breathless. And in the end, the thing that we both talk about is how without community and support of others that understand, neither of us would be in the place that we are today. So now it's my honor to share this conversation. Hi, welcome, JJ. I'm so um, honored to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I am um, anxious to get into our conversation. I feel like a lot of people will really um, benefit from hearing your story. So I'm going to ask you to start the same way I do everyone and share with me your last story. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. And I'm also very sorry about the loss of your boy, Alex. Thank Um, you. um, And, but I'm, when I say I'm happy to be here, I'm so happy to have an outlet like this. And I was so, so very glad to come upon your podcast and haven't missed one yet. So that's good. (laughs) So like yourself, I had a beautiful, beautiful boy. My son's name um, is Eric and he was my middle son. He has a younger sister and an older sister. And Eric was just, I'll just go ahead and start back from the very beginning. Just the easiest baby in the world. Just a, a so much fun to be around, just no problems as a kid, just easygoing, just did whatever his older sister told him to do. And we just had lots and lots of wonderful memories to think back on in terms of when Eric was was a little boy. And that continued on. He always did well in school. He was did some sports, wasn't real group sport kind of guy as he came out of 
middle school, I guess, or got into middle school, started getting to the cool stage. He liked skateboards and he liked surfing. We lived close to uh, the Atlantic Ocean and riding motocross. His dad did that when he was a kid. And so Eric got one when he was young and would do that. And then in high school, he played golf uh, on the golf team. I always liked the kids to have a sport along with everything they were doing with school, gave them some balance and all. So just overall, a really easy kid. Went to college, very intelligent kid. He was went to school, became a meteorologist. When he was a, when he was a, a young kid, he was frightened of storms. And we used to go out on the porch, watch the storms roll in and say, look, E, there's nothing to it. It's just some rain, loud noises. He just got fascinated with it and undergraduate in meteorology and then continued on and got his um, master's in mathematics and atmospheric science. So during those college years, pretty much a typical guy, wasn't a fraternity type guy, but had his buddies and he certainly started drinking socially. And when he was in college, I started to notice, started having some panicky panic attacks manifested a lot when it would come to have have to drive someplace and I would think well maybe he's trying to get someplace on coming up back on Sunday or going back to school on Sunday maybe just did too much partying on Saturday night but that that started manifesting itself more and more I started noticing some physical tics with some OCD type tendencies and I would say between the age of about 22 and probably 25, 26. During that time period, it really accelerated. So he got, he met a young lady where he was working and they got married. They were only married for a short time. And from the time that they got engaged until they got married, and then from there on, he really started having some problems with alcohol. Family history on both his dad's side and my side. So as a healthcare provider, I always had that in the back of my mind and had talked to the kids about that. This genetic thing is, it's the real deal. You have to pay attention to that. So I talked to him. It's like, mom, I got it under control. Don't worry. Reassured me over and over again. And unfortunately, the marriage didn't last very long. And it was really hard on him after that. And then he spiraled down more and more. He lived in another city, was not around any family. I think that was rough on him. We had some family tragedy in terms of my oldest daughter had married and her first child she lost, had had my granddaughter preterm, and she also had some physical anomalies. And that was really hard on everyone, of course. But I noticed Derek really, he really suffered with losing her. And it just really tormented him a lot. So much so to the point that I thought, "Mm, I think maybe I need to talk with Eric a little bit. So I brought it up one time. And at that time, he said, Mom, he said, I don't know about that so much. I feel like I'm just sad about losing her. But I feel like I am having some problems with anxiety. I don't sleep at night. And so from that point on, he was willing to, to seek treatment. And but from that point on, over a four, about a three and a half to four year period, seeking mental health health care in this country is just it's a nightmare. 
I'm sh- I know I've heard it from your other guests that you've had. It's just a recurring theme and it is so discouraging. And one of the other reasons why I'm glad you have this format, the more people like me that sit here and talk to you that are willing to get that story out there. I mean, there's got to be a way to change it. And I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I want you. I, I made a note. I'll, I'll, we'll, oh, go, sure. we'll come back to it. Absolutely. Okay. And so at that point, he was active, actively working at, at really trying to fix this. And he did better for a little bit. And believe he probably came off his medicine because he was feeling better, which is what a lot of people will do. But at some point, he said, I'm going to go back to my doctor. An example of the healthcare system, his doctor called me from when Eric was in his office and wanted to know what medicine did I think that my son needed to be on. <laughs> so as soon as he got out of there, I told him, I said, E, I think you need to find a new doctor. Okay, <laughs> definitely. So this is just how it went. And it just got worse and worse. And then he decided to seek treatment, was willing to go to rehab, stayed there the for the 30 days, got out, didn't last very long. He was going to, to Alcoholics Anonymous at the time, but I don't believe he was really on board with the fact that he was dealing with two problems. He had an alcohol problem as well as a mental illness that was still undiagnosed, still had not been um, taken care of properly by a professional. So in, in about a four to five month time period, he went back again, did better. It was a better treatment center for him, got out and went to a wonderful assist, not assisted living, but a sober living facility up in Nashville. And he was there for about three months and he did really well. He got out and decided that he wanted to move back down to coastal Georgia, North Florida area, back where he was raised and just make a new start and seemed motivated to, to be able to do that. He had a breakup with a girlfriend, a serious girlfriend, and that was really hard on both of them. She had been trying to help him along and helping him work towards sobriety and getting on the right medicine. Also, he had a lot of good support and Eric always knew his family loved him, supported him. He was we started a family foundation in honor of my granddaughter to raise money for congenital diaphragmatic hernias. That's what she passed away from. He was very active in that and loved having that to be able to be a part of. It was a really positive thing in his life. And so by the time he got down, he came down to where he and um, my husband were living. We're a blended family. Let me stop and say that. Um, His dad and I uh, were married for 21 years. We raised our three kids together and have a, what is it, a, a very functional, dysfunctional family. We definitely, we, we are able to get along. We get together for holidays and still share the kids and all of that. So very thankful for that. And then he has three stepbrothers and the youngest stepbrother, they were actually, they knew each other from school and they hung out in the same group, went to the same youth group at church and all, and definitely became best friends. So that was a positive thing. That was a positive part of his life. And he wanted to get back down to that atmosphere. So he was moving in those in that direction. And he came to stay with Mike, my husband and myself at our lake house. And he was coming down to Florida, moving some of his stuff down and 
he didn't get to see his youngest sister. She lived out in Los Angeles, but he was, they were always, they were talking on the telephone together, email, they, they had their Verizon bill together. So there was always some conversation about that. And then he would see his nephews. He saw his nephews maybe about two weeks before, before he passed away. He has two, two four-year-old twin nephews that my oldest daughter had, and he loved them dearly. I have, I don't know how many pictures I have of Eric and those boys, but tons. I would have loved to have made more, but, and he got to see his his older sister and his brother-in-law and all. So, but he was staying there with us, doing fine, not drinking, taking his medicine. I had taken him to the hospital a couple of times to renew his prescription. He had told me, he goes, mom, I need to get my prescription renewed. And I don't have an appointment for like another six, another six weeks. And I said, okay. So we went back the second time. It was about two weeks before he passed away. And I was with him down here where he was moving his stuff, took him to the emergency room. And I told him, I said, Eric, I said, I know you feel really strongly about being up on the up and truthful about everything. I said, but I really feel it's crucial at this point that you get a good psychiatric evaluation. And that involves blood work and possibly MRIs and EEGs and just I think that you really need for your own peace of mind to to get it to get a proper diagnosis and maybe that will help you land on the right medicine at the right dose and and he said sure yeah absolutely I'll, I'll tell him that's what I want and I said and I'm not if they even think that there's any hint of self harm or whatever I said I think that's where that would lead. And he told me, he said, well, mom, he said, I would, I've never done anything like that. And he said, and I, I just wouldn't, he said, there's got to be some help out there just by telling the truth and asking for help. So, I mean, he was 33. So I said, absolutely. And once again, the days of COVID. So I sat out in the car waiting for my son to come out there with his two prescriptions of exactly what he was on. And so the, the the days leading up, a couple of days leading up, he had gone back up, moved the rest of his stuff out of out of the home that he shared with his girlfriend up in North Alabama. And he and I came back to the lake house. And the next day, the, the night before, he um, was ha- having a lot of trouble sleeping. And I went in there, took him a couple of Benadryl. He asked, could I get a couple of Benadryl, took those in there and he, I said, Eric, I said, I ask you this all the time. I said, but you want me to just sit there and rub your head for you till you fall asleep? He said, you know what, mom? He said, yeah, I think that would be good. And so I sat there and I did that. Never fell asleep. But after a while, he said, that's good, mom. He goes, you go on to bed. We got a big day tomorrow. He had a couple of inter- Zoom interviews and uh, it was a great day. And uh, we went shopping and we cooked together and it was just Mike had been on the road and he got home and Eric and I had made hamburgers and I made his favorite baked beans and all the stuff that he loves. He and Mike were leaving the next morning to come on down here. I was going to work at the hospital a couple of days and then join him, join them down there for the weekend. And we were sitting there eating. Um, Eric had been at the table. I told him, go ahead. Mike was, had just gotten changed. I was fixing our plates. I said, go ahead and get started. And came in there and I sat down. Mike and I sat down in there with them. And I don't know why, Melissa, I never even, once I sat down, I never looked up at him. I don't know why I didn't. Mike said the same thing. I guess I was getting my plate ready. And all of a sudden, I, you know, I could feel that he got up, walked through the kitchen, and then back behind me. We lived up 
on a, a shallow, it, it was a little shallow hill, but looked right down on onto the lake. And our neighbor was out there and he was out on our dock talking on the phone. And all of a sudden, Mike said, where'd Eric go? And why do you leave the door open? And he just, he got up from the dinner table and we had seen otters off of our dock that day. And I said, I don't know, maybe he saw some otters out there. And Mike went up and went and shut the door. And he said, yeah, he's walking past Matt just down to the dock down there. So anybody that's been caught up in something like this, I can't tell you, didn't seem like it was more than five minutes. I got up to see where did he go? And when I got there, I saw my my neighbor, my neighbor frantically on his phone. And I, when I opened up the door, I said, I hollered down to him, hollered his name, and he waved me down there and he yelled at me. He's in the water. And I was clueless. I had no idea who he was talking about. And I said, who's in the water? And he just kept pointing to the water. And then I looked over where I expected to see my son and he wasn't there. And I realized he met Eric. And I was like, what is he doing in the water? I said, he was just eating dinner. And he said, I don't know. I don't know. But I could tell he was frantic. He was afraid. And I thought, oh, well, he doesn't realize that Eric was the 10 and under state of Georgia butterfly and breaststroke champion. Eric's a swimmer. No doubt about it. He's a swimmer. Six foot five. Golly, I should have even I should have introduced you to Eric. Just just a handsome boy. Six foot five. Just looked a little bit. People used to tell me he looked like Ashton Kutcher with he could grow a pretty good beard, though. I don't know that Ashton could grow that, <laughs> grow one that that burly. But when I'm like, oh, OK, so I go down there and I'm hollering for him. And I don't I can't tell you the time frame, Melissa. But the next thing I know, my neighbor's going in, he's going in the water. He jumped in the water over me. And I'm like, what in the world? And then just something clicked with me. And I just had panic just seize my heart. And I knew at that point. And my neighbor came. Next thing I knew, I, I knelt down just trying to look. And all of a sudden, I, I saw my neighbor was pushing Eric up towards me. So I saw his back coming up towards me. And I screamed uh, for my husband. He was up in the house with the door closed, and he didn't hear me. And we could get Eric out of the water, but we could not get him up on the dock. It was deep there, probably about 14 feet. And Matt was just, he was going under fast. He's, uh, he wasn't, he, it, it was hard for him to do what he did. And I, I cannot thank him. <laughs> there, there's not enough thanks in this world for, for putting himself in danger like that to, to go in. But as soon as I saw Eric's face, his, I was sure that I was, if, if we were lucky to get him up and get him to be able to resuscitate, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to be successful. But eventually, Mike came to investigate what was taking so long, and he came running down there, and he thought the neighborhood was in the water, and Eric was trying to get him out. And of course, when he saw that, it was his Eric. But we got him out, and we started initiating CPR on him. And my husband and I and my neighbor went and ran up and called 911. And that was, you, you kick into that mode. I wanted to make sure I was doing everything right and all. But the whole time I'm thinking, uh, I was afraid that it was a, a futile effort. The rescue team got there. And it all seems like it took a, a long time, but it was probably 15 minutes. And they took him to the ambulance and Mike and I hopped in the car and 
we went over there, but I knew when they got there and you know, when they came in, you keep hoping and hoping, but I knew when they came in that what they were going to tell us and people tell you, I just, I just can't imagine. And my response to them always is, I'm so glad you can't imagine. Because it's just as horrific as you've worried about ever since they were little fo- folks. What would I do if it's it's just as horrific? And so it was just Mike and I. And as a medical professional, I know I said that in your introduction. So, but just to remind people that you are a medical professional. So that kind of, that sounds like that kind of kicked in along with your instinct as a mother to it kicked in of, I have to try to do something. Yes. yes. Yeah, it, it really did. And I only know it from the aspect of being a mom and a midwife. So there's, there may be tons of moms that have had to, to do that with their children, but in accident situations. And, but I really felt like, I, I guess that, that, that is probably the one area that maybe I play over. I, I don't really, the horrifying part of it, I don't think I really concentrate on as much as I I stop and think, gosh, did I, was I doing everything right? Was I, was I able to get those breaths in like I needed to and all, but I I think back and and I, I could feel it and I could see it. And Mike was giving me feedback and all of that. So I feel like I, I did the best that I could with the situation that I was in. Right. So. I try not to to over overthink that too much. And I've often thought that you hear all these stories about people that are in the water forever and then they <laughs> come back and they and, and as when I remember when I looked at his face and I thought, gosh, this is I don't know that I don't know that there was anything for me to work with here. I, I, I don't know. But in the back of my mind I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, that there's always hope. You just don't know. You hear all of these stories. And I remember going to the hospital just thinking, I've always had such good luck. Don't let my luck run out now. Don't let my luck run out now. But the medical part of me kept coming up. And like I say, I just knew. I I really did. Well, and knowing that there's the medical training and you having been a part of life and death before. Mm -hmm. And then also knowing that there's hope. Right. Mm-hmm. And as a mom, mm-hmm. but you also probably somewhere in the back of your mind knew a little bit of knew, knew, It sounds like as you played out the story that there was time becomes relative when we remember these things, right? Like, mm-hmm. was it five minutes? Was it 10? And so there was, a, it wasn't probably, I mean, you probably knew there was a little more time elapsed than probably you thought there was too. It wasn't as if you had just Correct. Right. seen him and, and would have had a little it's, there was more of a delay probably than you wish there had been. I think so, Melissa. And I think that was one of the reasons why my neighbor was acting frantic. He probably has more of had more of a perspective of how long Eric had been in the water or from the time he heard him go in the water and to the time right. that I came down there. And it's interesting. And I don't know if this is something that I'll revisit and I'll want to talk to him more about it. But at the time, he was—he he had never seen anything like that, had never been part of anything like that. And I didn't really feel like asking him to revisit that a whole lot right, was right. 
uh, was the right thing to do to him. I mean, he already had jumped in. I don't even know if he knows how to swim. <laughs> you know, right. he already you know, went above and beyond what I thought was somebody that, that he did not have to do what he did. And I was so grateful that he was willing to do that. Yeah, that says a lot about him. It says does. A lot about humans in general when we hear the things that they're willing to do for Isn't each it? other without thinking about the cost to themselves. Yes. Right? You know, he's a father and he probably was thinking thinking along those lines. But oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to tell you the the, the thing that that I think about most about that night was when we left the hospital and <sighs> we went um and we got in the car and it was just Mike and I, and we just sat there. We didn't say anything. He didn't start the car. And I said, Mike, I said, if we don't tell anybody, if we don't tell anybody about this. We can figure this out, but we don't have to tell anybody right now. We don't ever have to tell. Anybody. I mean, and I was saying that, Melissa, like. I remember thinking, I don't want to tell anybody. If I didn't tell anybody, it wasn't real. It wasn't real. Yeah. It was like, I guess maybe the most irrational. I I often wondered, did anybody, did you ever have any thoughts like that? Like, how in the world do you spread this word? How do you blow up everybody's life? Yeah, it's. I think back and so much, of course, that's when we go into shock. We Whether we think we're in shock or not, we are. Mm -hmm. And our brain and goes into that protection mode and, and somewhat of a, of a, yes, there were things that happened from the moment I found out until later that day that I look back and think, what in the world was I saying that for? Like we found out I, my youngest son had to tell me and Alex was two and a half hours away at college and I remember grabbing a duffel bag and I started throwing, I'm going to tell you it was random things. It was probably stuff that didn't even make sense. But in my brain, we were going to be going to stay in Kirksville where Alex was. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you why that even made sense to me. Like in my mind, I was going to go stay there until he came home and, and until we brought, it was like, I knew somehow in my logical mind, I had to know we weren't going to actually like accompany him back home. And I don't know why I thought I would need to stay there. Like in my mind, I thought we were going to be going there, getting a hotel staying because I figured there'd be things to, of course you don't have any frame of reference for most of us don't for what happens when your child dies. And in my case, I wasn't with him. He was somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I remember the very cold coroner telling me there was abs on the phone that there was absolutely no reason for me to come. And he didn't understand why I was coming. Well, <laughs> my, my son's dog was there for one, which I knew that was his baby and everything to him. So that, that occurred to me fairly quickly that we needed to get to Harper. It almost felt like needing to get to a child to me because that's how much she meant to him. And I knew she would be by herself, but I also, in my mind knew that my son was there. And I didn't understand this and it didn't feel real to me. And uh, there was probably almost a part of me that just went, I've got to see this or something. Not in that. I don't mean that in a morbid way. I mean that almost in a way of it's not real. I haven't seen him. I'm going to get there and this is going to be a big mistake. They're wrong. They didn't find him or it wasn't him or I don't even know the thing. It doesn't stuff that doesn't make sense. And so 
Yeah. Some of the things we said and did early on, I, I look back and go, I wonder why I said that, but it's just your brains. It's almost like you're in one of those weird disconnected dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Where you're like, uh, parts of it make sense, but parts of us didn't make sense at all. And those <laughs> are the dreams we have, right? Where I was in my house, but it wasn't really my house. It's that type of an experience. Yeah. Yeah. Very not connected. Definitely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're somewhat disconnected and almost hovering mm-hmm. above it. And and so to hear you say that that was your response. And Mike is Eric's stepdad, right? Mike is your stepdad. Yes. yes. We, yeah. So, you know, I had, and my husband wouldn't have had as many years probably with Alex as it sounds like Mike had with Eric, but GR probably would have gone along with almost anything I said in the very beginning, just because he was trying to go, okay, honey, whatever he could to take care of me. Cause again, he wasn't Alex's father. So his concern was to take, be there to care for everybody and try to be the voice of reason and be the person to drive the car and do the things that the rest of us couldn't do. And so a lot of the things I said, I think he just was, okay, let's pack a bag, but we got to get out of the house, Melissa. And why are you packing a bag? What are we doing? I was thinking about something we talked about when we initially talked and wanted you to expand on it a little bit, if you would, but you're in telling the story and remind me how old Eric was. Eric uh, was 33. Yeah. He had turned 33 about three weeks before that, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Because in talking about the last couple of, well, it sounds like about the last six or eight years of his life where he really was struggling with since Mm -hmm. college, there's a couple of things that come to mind and you can choose to talk about them in whatever order you want to. But I was thinking about the mental health deficiency when you were talking earlier and how that's one of the reasons why coming on and talking and sharing your story is important, not only to you, but to me as well. It is one of the reasons one of the many reasons that having these conversations is important. It's not only to get the message out there and to try to make a difference, but it's also the collective message of connecting us across the globe as grievers, especially when we're talking about this kind of thing, it's within our country and it seems to be pretty prevalent in Canada too, where the struggle with mental health deficiencies is so great. But yet when we're dealing with our own situation, Mm-hmm. We tend to have that the blinders on and sometimes tend to do the, maybe this isn't as bad as I think. Maybe it's just my situation. Maybe we just weren't seeking the right medical care. Maybe it's just our system that we're a part of in our town or county or wherever we're from. And the more people I talk to and the more widespread I hear the problem is it's not just in colleges where I thought I never for a minute thought it was just in colleges, but in my situation, the mental health deficiency hit drastically at the college level. It was a big, it was an integral part of, of the deficiency and the, the falling down of some of the systems that failed Alex. And then I hear mother after sister after wife talk about how the mental health system failed their loved one, turned them away at an emergency room or Mm -hmm. gave them a blanket prescription for something after seeing them once. It just goes on and on of the different levels that this hits at, but it's still the overriding theme that we have so far to come with how we treat mental health in this part of the world. 
I mean, all I can speak to is the part of this part of the world and in countries that I would put as peers of ours. But when we have come so far with physical health and treatment of ailments and things that are covered and handled and tests that are done and MRIs and all the things that we can do when someone has a torn rotator cuff. But when they struggle with sleep and anxiety and depression and addiction for years, they're repeatedly turned away and told this isn't that serious or it's not that bad, or they give them something that's inappropriate or fill in the blank. Are we not ordering tests because it's not covered? It's just so, it's so sad. And so it made me think about wanting you to speak to that a little bit more, but also because for you, one of the terms that you used for me when we first talked was you felt like that just a switch flipped, like literally almost probably that day or that moment or whatever that some, because you said he just, even though you didn't make that eye contact while you were eating hindsight's always weird, isn't it? But you know, you're thinking, why didn't we look up and talk or whatever, but you're a family, you're just behaving normally. And all of a sudden he just stood up and Walked out, yes. Didn't like something from an eerie movie, almost. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And neither Mike nor myself, we weren't, we weren't watching him. You, you had a sense of where he was, and then when he walked out the door, Mike saw him because he had an angle on him that was to my back. The last, the, he five minutes before that, Melissa, he said, "Mom, thank you so much for making these baked beans. They're my favorite. I love them so much. Thank you." You're welcome, me. <laughs> right. That was the last, was last thing he said to you. And last, um, yeah, last thing he ever said to me. But it, it speaks to that mental health. If he had been being treated correctly and diagnosed properly and had the tools and all the things that he could have had, could have, what you know, could have, would have, should have. We live in those world, that world, right? But so many of us do think if the right mental health diagnosis and or help had been available what would the outcome have been, right? Because what was he dealing with that he didn't have the right tools, whether the tools were cognitive behavioral tools or medication or whatever, because we all know there's all those layers of of things available. He obviously wasn't getting the right help. And the sleep, which goes hand in hand with a lot of these issues, the sleep and the addiction issues, it becomes a circular problem because the more sleep deprived we are, the worse those issues become as well. Absolutely. And it's that, I mean, that's just, if somebody's not sleeping as long, and even they're not manifesting other things, that's something that you have to address. You have to work on that. As a midwife, of course, I delivered babies, but I I did the GYN care as well. And so I worked with women all the time on mental wellness and helping them achieve mental wellness. If it was not in my wheelhouse, by golly, I got them someplace. I have always felt like mental wellness is it's hard to have one without the other. It really is. And I could definitely see that with Eric. And in terms of his, even just taking care of himself and how he presented, I could tell when he was not doing well. And it it very easily manifested itself. And it was so, so very frustrating. And for myself, when I would take care of patients, I would do follow-ups with them. I would want to see them. I would want to talk to him on the phone. I would have him come into the office. Hey, let's go over. Let's see what's working and what's not working and all of that. And there was just none of that. None of that was going on. And in several different arenas, he had sought in several different cities. 
And you listen to the to people on television, famous people, people in 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 the news that are coming out and talking about this these mental illness, anxiety. Carson Daly's a really good one. And he's very been very open about it. It took him five years, five years to get a diagnosis. And he's very upfront about it. And you can read his book. I mean, that is just, he had to put his foot down. He just, he would show up and somebody wanted, just like you say, throw another prescription at him. No, I want to know, why am I like this? What right, let's run t- blood tests. Let's run scans. Let's do things to determine because exactly. that's the thing I'm such an advocate for is we can't, our healthcare system in some ways has, and it's not everywhere. There's practitioners like yourself and, and but you have to be proactive in your own healthcare Absolutely. and healthcare doesn't mean body care. I treat it as whole wellness that you, we really yes. have to take this approach because it's true. Our everything's connected. And to think that our brain health is disconnected somehow from everything else, our brain controls everything in our body. So the very idea that we would separate our mental wellness and things that are going on within in our brain with what's going on in the rest of our body, when you really stop and think about it is not, it's not even logical. It doesn't make any sense at all. It really doesn't. And when you don't address that, you're telling them don't talk about it. Right. I always used to tell my patients, whatever you need to talk about, if you can't tell me, who can you tell, who can you talk to you? If I don't ask people about that, then I'm saying you should be ashamed of it. You should keep it under, under the rug. Or it's not real. It's not real. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's such a disservice. And young men, of course, Mm -hmm. you probably know the statistics for self-harm and suicide or suicide attempts. But I have a feeling that it is larger. I don't know how much larger than than females. But I do know that there is a classic time period with young men when if they do have some type of mental illness, it starts to manifest itself. And from what I've heard, it's somewhere between like 20 and 30. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's just a classic time. And I always had that in the back of my mind with Eric. Yes, I think that's what I was seeing. And so then I started trying to convince people in the family, hey, this, because let's face it, having someone that sometimes has trouble controlling with Eric, it was alcohol that can, that can take its toll on a family in general. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's perfect human nature. You want to be like, right. Oh man, you got to get hold of yourself. You got to think you got your good looking guy. You got a great job, all this kind of stuff, making right. good money. You got to get your act together. Well, you don't, walk up to a cancer patient and tell them, oh, you know what? You got to get those cancer cells out of your body, man. Yeah. You, you know? got to snap out of this. You got to snap yep. out of it. You're stronger <laughs> than that. You're stronger than those cancer right, cells. You got to get right. your act together. You know, right. We to, just have to stop it. We have to stop this in this country. And you're right about young men. And I did this. The statistics are probably some of what you think and some of what you don't. So they're, it's greatly skewed with young men end their lives, they die by suicide about 60% more than women. However, they don't attempt to take their lives more often. Men just tend to choose more lethal means. Mm -hmm. Women are less successful because they tend to do things that are less lethal initially. And that's just by nature of the male and the female and how we're raised in our culture of what we gravitate towards. And I'll even allude back to the episode I just did about gun safety, right? So Mm -hmm. men tend to gravitate towards more lethal means by nature. And so therefore they die a lot more frequently than women do. However, men 
hugely reach out for help way less often than women do. Women are much more willing to reach out for help than men are still by and large. And I still see that. I see that with the the parents that I work with and talk to and see on a regular basis. I had somebody say to me, you only work with moms. I said, absolutely not. My groups are for dads as well. They're for parents. I, the groups that I do for support spaces are for parents. My podcast is for all suicide loss. But on my website, the things that I do are for, for parents because that's my wheelhouse. That's where I feel my calling with the support spaces. I have not had a dad present yet. And that's only because just like young men and and men are not reaching out for help and ending their lives, they're not reaching out for help when they've lost a child. They're keeping it to themselves. They're struggling with it. They, because they don't, we just have to do a better job at people understanding that our mental wellness, our wellness in general is our health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was telling somebody that one day we were talking about why is it easy for someone, especially men, they might say, oh, my, like I use our, use the example of if they've torn the rotator cuff or, I mean, I think men are more willing to say they're going to have prostate exam or surgery than they are to say, do you know, a good psychiatrist or who have you seen when you're struggling, man, I'm really not sleeping or they just don't want to be perceived as weak or less than or whatever. And I think there's an interesting thing that you talking about Eric and me thinking about Alex brings to mind, which is the whole, and I think a lot of people listening probably think the same thing. There's this scary place that seems to exist when you go back. Cause you said the same thing in a different way that I remember saying about Alex, you said that Eric seemed to be getting a lot of these things under control. He seemed to be getting the drinking under control that he wanted to come home, be near family again, just seemed to be getting on top of some of it seemed to be in a fair. Now you said he was struggling with sleep a little bit and all those things, but he wasn't in like his worst place when he came back home. And for Alex, he was with us five of his last six weeks. And even though I had known he had a really rough semester and was struggling, He seemed to be really good when I said, I mean, by all accounts, he seemed to be in a pretty good place. And it just seems to be this common thread where there is almost this switch that flips sometimes where it's almost the calm right before, because there's a lot of people that tend to say, I just kind of thought they were doing better. I hear that more than I hear. And not that doesn't exist. There's obviously, you know, cases where someone's gone missing because they did have a relapse and different things. And then they, in their life ends in that moment as well. But I hear an awful lot of people talk about what I say and what you've said, which is we thought they were on the upswing of some of the tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that switch getting flipped, Eric, he knew all the people that loved him in his family. He knew the kind of support. He had come back down here a couple of times and he got to play golf with his, his stepbrother, his best buddy, been, been spending a lot of time with Mike, d- doing some manly stuff around the house, all, all those things that, that Eric really treasured. Mike said it very succinctly when we were laying in bed that night, that first night, after we just got back from the hospital. He said, that was not Eric that marched down that hill. Eric knew the 
people. And so when I hear people, I think that people think, oh, gosh, how could Eric do that to them or whatever? That's Eric. In my mind, that was not, you're right. Eric would never. Eric did everything he could for us. Yeah. And just something switched. And that part of his brain that just was not well took over. Yeah, it's it's the difference between chronic illness and acute illness. And it's so easy for people to recognize if someone has, they're missing a hand. Mm-hmm. And they have that, and that's not really a chronic illness, but if, if they have something that's wrong long-term versus when we get, we have a, we could even say if someone has a seizure, I mean, a seizure is something that you're not going to have any control over. It happens, you go through it and hopefully in most of the time it's over. It doesn't, it's usually not fatal, right? If it's mm-hmm. you know a small seizure or something, or we have, we get really ill with something overnight. Sometimes if you think about our, the switch flipping in our body from being fine to suddenly vomiting violently, there's that moment that the switch flips, right. That you go Mm -hmm. from being well Mm -hmm. to not well Mm -hmm. in an instant, really, there's just a moment when something changes. So for us to think, and now that we've witnessed it in our lives, that there wasn't something that just switched in that moment. I said, I didn't say that exact phrase, but what I said very a lot in the beginning was Alex had something happen in an instant Mm -hmm. that he made a decision on that wasn't in his right mind and he couldn't take it back. Right. Mm -hmm. Because when it's that kind of a decision, it can't be turned around. And I always said, Alex didn't want to die. People would say things like, I just don't understand why Alex wanted to die. Alex didn't want to die. This was an illness. This was, whether and they mm-hmm. then people go like, well, I didn't think he was mentally ill. It's that whole misconception of what mental illness is versus there is chronic, there's acute, there's all these different things that come into it, but something happened in the wiring of their brain at that moment. Yes. That unfortunately they couldn't take back. Well, I think of we're gathering pictures for Eric's celebration of life ceremony that's coming up. And we can't find one where he doesn't have the biggest grin on his face, then smiling, laughing, mm-hmm. holding his nephews, hanging out with his sister's brother. I mean, what? That would be Alex too. He was goofing around in all of his photos and happy. And he was the one always in the middle with the arms around everybody. And we've taken a few photos since then. The first family photo we took that was everybody together eerily, it was on a beach and we didn't do it on purpose at all. I don't even know why it's there. There's a gap right in the middle that if I Photoshopped it, Alex could fit right in that gap. Yeah. And I don't, I look at that photo to this day. And in my mind, I see Alex there there because I know he was there. We didn't leave that gap on per, and it would, it'd be a great story if we said that we left that gap for Alex, like people that leave the chair, Yeah, which we've done that before. We leave a chair at Thanksgiving or when GR and I got married, we left a chair and, but we didn't leave that spot on purpose. He was Mm -hmm. just there. And, but he was, because he, it's ironically in the middle where Alex, I look back at pictures of him and his cousins and him and his siblings. And he was just physically and figuratively the glue that was like holding everybody into this, the family that we were. So that's a nice segue into asking you to honor and speak to 
him a little bit and your daughters a little bit as far as the family and what this, how this looks. And you're just now coming up on a year and maybe talk a little bit about the fact that you didn't have a celebration because of the pandemic and things and what that's going to look like for you all as you, you move into that year place and celebrating his life, the memorial. It's certainly everything that COVID has touched, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be truthful with you, though. In the beginning, I was okay with that because, remember, this is a girl sitting in the car that doesn't want to tell anybody. It says we're not going to tell anybody. Yeah, it's a big secret. We're going to keep it. Like that even seems now, like now that even seems logical, right? But it made sense. Yeah. Yeah, it made sense at the time until Mike looked at me and said, do you want to call his dad first or the girls? I'm like, right. He's not going with my plan. It is boy, it it just changes your family in in so many ways. It's brought out some strengths, some ways that I see my daughters and their willingness to go to counseling, both of them in their respective cities, Atlanta and Los Angeles. They've gotten involved with the SOS, the survivors of suicide, Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. guess, very, and are staying very active. We had already experienced when Kate lost her daughter, we found that that safety in numbers game then. And then for me, when I realized Eric had a drinking problem, I, I landed on Al-Anon mm-hmm. and that was a really positive thing. And one of the things that drew me to your podcast is there really is safety in numbers. You, I can listen to your podcast and just, I just feel better. What is it about it to know that, you know what? We're not alone. We're not alone. And I grieve for all of you all too. And I, I pray for everybody that I hear when I say my prayers and all. But as twisted as it sounds, when you think about there's, okay, other people are doing it. I can do it too. Yeah. And my girls have, I'm, I'm just so proud of them. I really am. And and they've approached it and they're, they're different kinds of personalities. So it was Kate and Eric first, and she was three and a half years older than him. And he adored his older sister till the very end. He always admired her. Honey, she'd have him dressed up playing in all the uh, Disney princess dresses and <laughs> dancing to the musicals and, and all that. And it, of course, it worked out great. He did get to be Prince Eric Lutz because that was his name. You oh, know? that's but, funny. Yeah. But, oh, he would do whatever she wanted him to do. And did she like the little mermaid? Did that work out? Loved. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I had a daughter. I know who <laughs> Prince Eric is. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, and then Janie Grace came along. I had a couple of pregnancy losses in between Eric and Janie. I was going for that every three years. And so there's eight years between the girls and then five years between E and Janie Grace. And so by the time she came along, she was like that. She was doing her own thing. So I think growing up, maybe until Kate went off to school, then they find found their niche. They were both golfers. They both golfed on the golf team. And I know people think I'm crazy, but when I tell you, I have no memory of my kids screaming, yelling at me even, or their dad or at each other. They were just really easy kids. I don't know if we just gave them whatever that they wanted or, or what (laughs) we kept them really busy, but I know people think I fabricate that, but they, they were really easy kids. As they got older, Kate, graduated, got her life going and and all of that. And both Janie Grace and Eric 
were more academically, they were they were scientists in terms of the careers that they chose and all. And I remember thinking, I'm glad they found a place for closeness like he and Kate always had. And then you start getting grandbabies and you know how that kind of brings everybody together. And so, and then our foundation that we get together several times a year for, to, to raise money or to, we have a, a golf, a golf tournament in Atlanta to raise money. We always had that together. So bringing those dime, always having those dynamics, it was so nice. And I think it was really comforting. I think Eric felt like he had a place, even when he wasn't, he did compare himself to his sisters. Why can't I get my act together? Why, you know, that, that type of stuff. And, and, you know, but I would always tell him, you, you, you do, you get your, you're doing your own pace. They're, they're doing their own thing. You don't know their, what their day to day is. So right. don't, that's, I think that's a common thing in, in people that, that suffer from, from mental illness or they're wanting to be as good. They, they never, I, I used to tell them, I wish you could look in the mirror and see the same person that I saw just this beautiful human. And Loved everybody. If you were Eric's friend, you were loved. He had such respect for people and everybody that has commented about Eric. They all say the same thing. You feel like you felt like you were the only person in the room with Eric. That he cared about what you were talking about. And we it wasn't on his phone. He wasn't looking across the room. You know, you he was just really caught up in in you. And that's those people are few and far between. But what I find when, as I listen, another nice thing about your podcast is so many people were like Eric, that that cream in the middle of the Oreo. They were just, they saw themselves as being a facilitator and helping people through things and all. It's just, it's really ironic, isn't it? That It is. The amount of people that I hear talk about how empathetic yes. and caring and yes. loving that their loved one was, it, it just brings me sometimes back to that point where I sometimes say, Alex loved so much in the short time he was here. And he, in many ways, it was, he took so much on that was like the world was just a little bit too much for his heart Mm -hmm. in the end. It was just, it was like, it was, it must've been so heavy at some point to, to feel all of, I really feel like he wanted to, he felt a little helpless in being able to fix some of the things he wanted to fix and do some of the th- good that he wanted to do. And he was in the middle of his own version of that in his fraternity. And But I feel like it was just one example of the way he would feel every time he wanted to help somebody or do something to make it better and was willing to take all of this on himself, but wasn't willing to ask anybody else to take any of his burden. Mm-hmm. He was just, he just was willing to bear it all himself. And it was just a little more than he could actually bear at at that moment. I used to say about Eric that the world is a hard place for people like Eric. They just want the best for everyone. He would take things so to heart that he would hear things that were going on in the news and all. Yeah. Uh, It's a double-edged sword. Eric was the, the one of my children. I, when I was about, I I would love to be able to remember dreams. I don't think I sleep well enough to get to where I need to be to have (laughs) dreams. But I had a dream when Eric was about two months old. And I dreamt that I was sitting in the hospital bed and everything was dark around me. And there was this kind of shaft of light. I was sitting there cross-legged. I was waiting for them to bring me Eric. It was time to nurse. And all of a sudden, this 
woman steps into this shaft of life, nurse, it's kind of like nurse ratchet, the starch, mm-hmm. hat, the starched uniform. And she's got this bundle of blankets right there. And I'm like, oh, I said, I've been waiting for him. And she came over and she put him in my arms and she stepped back and she was standing right at the end of the bed and I pulled back the blankets. I kept pulling away blankets and then all the blankets were gone and Eric wasn't there. And I looked up at her and I said, where's my baby? And she leaned in towards me back in that light. And she said, sugar, you knew he wasn't yours to keep, right? And I woke up. And I used to think about that dream sometimes and wonder, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that? Mm. And And this was when he was two? Two months old. Two months old. And you you don't even have that many dreams that you remember. And yet you've kept that one. Did you, you, then you've heard me talk about synchronicities and some of the stories I've heard other moms tell, Mm -hmm. including my Mm -hmm. own, where it does make you look back and go, what in the world? What in the world? Yeah. Yeah. Was I supposed to be worried about him? That's, I guess, maybe something you talk about guilt. Was I supposed to be worried about him more? Was I supposed to be being closer attention and all of that? But then I was, or was that just a way somehow? across the, I don't even know what words to call it without it sounding weird. Cause I don't mean it to sound weird, but was it, or is it just some way across that time continuum that you were in some way being told even then to prepare your heart for the fact that he was only here for a time? Yeah. Yeah. I think about that. Yeah. You know, I think about that. And you know, I've got artwork and different things and things that have happened in with Alex that I look back and there's, mm-hmm. yeah, there's several things that have happened. And you've, you probably heard Vicki Stam tell her story about Calvin and that, that she had something happen when he was three that then mm-hmm. and happened 30, 28 years later, right before she lost him, that was literally that daydream dropped right back on her. And she was like, wow, how'd that 28 years go so fast? And it was like, she was seeing it 28 years later, exactly as it had happened. And then he was gone within a few weeks. And yeah, the synchronicities that happen sometimes around these children that we've lost, it's really, it's a good scary, but it's, 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 it's yeah. a, I take every, all of those things, you know, some I guess some, that's what people maybe call when you're able to make a connection that God winks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it does. Well, yeah. Whatever you call that heart. to me, it's bright. Exactly. Yeah, it's that, yeah. it's that precious like feeling. This, like this, Melissa, look what I have part of Eric with me, part of his ashes. Look what it is. Oh, isn't that what's on your it, wall over there in your picture? Is it similar? That's a, that's yeah, actually, so, it's actually, it's here, but it's oh, a stone. Okay. It's a stone, it's but it's yours. Wood. Has Is yours it's concrete or ashes. wood? Mm-hmm. It's wood it has some of his ashes in there's a gal in the uh uk that does or maybe it's a company I shouldn't just say gal i don't know I, i've seen her on her instagram videos but mm-hmm. i'm trying to think of what it's called i need to feature them on my on my artisan page but i haven't ordered anything from her yet but they mix ashes into uh, little yeah. concrete formations and or i think they've even put them in people's like made fountains for people or whatever people uh, want to do and they mix some ashes into but it's amazing how much what you're holding looks like what i'm holding yeah. i know our, i know our yeah. listeners can't hear us but yeah but when i bought this it's called a carnelian is the stone but there's a hole right here i don't know if you can see it there's a natural hole in it wow 
And inside of that hole, and there's cracks that come off of it. Well, when I bought it, it was like, that was the reason I bought it. And it was actually part of the inspiration for my logo, which you can't Mm -hmm. see right here, but because inside there, there's all these sparkly crystal formations. And it just struck me from the very moment I saw it, that even though that crack and that hole is never going away, there's beauty still inside of there. Mm-hmm. And so that was why this always sits close to me um, when I podcast and why it was the inspiration for my heart with, I was, I told the person that made my logo, I want there to be cracks, but there also still has to be some holes because some of the pieces never came back. They're just mm-hmm. gone. Right. Yep. But there yep. still can, we can still function. And I think this is a, a really good accidental segue into, I want to ask if there's anything else that you haven't shared And if there is, I'd love you to do so. If there's not, I'd love to hear you talk and and wrap things up a little bit by sharing a little bit of what you told me that your goal for doing this was in order to maybe offer some hope or healing for others. So would you do that? I would. Thank you. Well, I guess I don't know that there's anything I can sit and talk about them forever, but a big thank you. Uh, like I say, once again, that you had the courage to step out and start doing this. I'm, I I tell many people about it. I'm the only person I know in my own world. Me and too. so to see somebody that, that looks like you'd live right next door and we'd go to the movies. And, I mean, it just helps to be able to know that there's these, you use this word all the time and I love it. And I think it is a very important word in our culture, and that's community. I don't think there's anything more important than that because it it's people that that support you, and that you in turn support them, and you want to help them, and they want to help you. And I just don't think we're going to be able to make any headway unless. It is a community and we do get more, draw more and more people into it. And that's why I think what you do is so important. I wasn't motivated to start a foundation. I helped my daughter with with hers for my granddaughter and all, but it did not take very long for Steve, Eric's dad and myself to try and find some place where we're living. There's just nothing here. And so I found a counselor and started listening to podcasts, looking for podcasts. But yours was the one that I landed on that I really felt like this is somewhere where I can learn. You do a really great job of bringing in experts. And then you can, I feel like what you, your rabbit holes, I love those. <laughs> those are set. Those are such a mixture, I think, of what you're learning along this journey and, and how it shapes you. But then Oh, I'm mom too. And so this is what I thought about. And this is how something that you relate to your other children, or I remembered this when this happened with Alex and all, and it's just a nice blend. I think you had asked me on one of the questionnaire, without a doubt, those are my favorite. I love your rabbit holes. I just think that they speak to people like me that just don't have that community yet. So in answer to your question, I really feel like if I'm Listening to my heart, Eric was always really excited by what I did. He loved the fact that I delivered babies for a living and, and took care I of do women. Too. I love that. <laughs> and he really felt like what, what I did was important. And he would tell me that all the time. And, and I feel like 
he would not be the least bit surprised if he knew that I was going to take this and midwife it, try and take it and maybe reach some people out there. And I'm not a professional and I certainly will seek professionals to, to help and, and do whatever I need to do. But I, that, that's what I'd like to do in my community and just have an outlet for people just to sit down face to face and talk. This world is makes the, the whole world a lot smaller and all, but it's still a lot of people. They just they don't think they can do it or they don't want to do it. They don't mm-hmm. want to learn the technology that goes mm-hmm. along with it. And I think that that is something that I would I just see it's lacking so much in this community. I would really like to to try and do something. So I have I no doubt you notes. I take <laughs> notes when I listen to you. Well, you know that I'm here anytime I could offer Absolutely. any sort of help. I'm here and I couldn't do what I do if there weren't people like you willing to have these conversations. So it, it was hard to step out and do this. I'm not going to for one second say it wasn't. If you've listened to enough of my episodes, I don't try to say it was easy. It took me a year from the time I decided to actually almost a year to, to actually get the podcast out there. And truth be told, there's people that'll teach you to podcast and get your live episode live in like a weekend or a day or So realistically, it's not like I can say, oh, it takes that long. I mean, to do it right, you shouldn't do it in a weekend. (laughs) But but at the same time, it it doesn't need to take nine months either. But it was terrifying to step Mm -hmm. out and say, one, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? I don't know how to do this. And is anybody going to care what I have to say? And I just had to go out and I just kept looking at the pictures of my beautiful son and said, it's my job to shine his light. And it's my job to, to try to make a difference, to try to help other people. Like I couldn't find what I wanted. And so I thought, well, gosh, darn it. I'm going to try to figure out how to make it. And I, I keep coming back to that darn word community because that's how much it matters to me to have this community of other grieving souls that have lost their loved one in this traumatic, unexplainable manner. Mm-hmm. that just uh, rips a hole in our heart and shatters our life. And then because they were such amazing people, that's what I tell people. That's your motivation for putting it back together. That's how I honor Eric. Yeah. The way, exactly. I, the way I feel about it is, is, is how I want. And I, and guess what? I don't say this lightly and I don't because I'm sitting in similar shoes to you, but you're doing a beautiful job, mom. <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah, I know that by saying that, I'm not telling you that I think it's easy because I get every single bit of how hard it is. So yeah, absolutely. So we will end here. It's always hard for me to end a good conversation, but we will, for now, we will end here. And it was just my pleasure. My pleasure, JJ. I feel the same way and I'll be listening to you. Well, I have no doubt we'll stay connected. Okay. (laughs) Talk soon. Thank you. Grievers, it is my hope that from today, you will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. If you connect with what you have heard, please subscribe to get notified of my new episodes every week, and please feel free to share it with others in the suicide loss community. If you are so led, I would also be honored if you would leave a review so that others might find us more easily. You can find me and always to connect with me at my Instagram, The Leftover Pieces. I want you to know that I know how very, very hard life is now. 
it's true that we will never be the same, but we are going to be okay. We will figure this out somehow, together, and we will keep our loved ones with us because there is no getting over or past grief, only learning to live more gracefully alongside it. Only through talk can we keep their memories alive, learn to live again, and bring some awareness so that less will suffer. Join me again next week, and we will keep the talk going. We will sign off today, as always, with the wise words of my Alex's favorite, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon.